the Own Your Intuitive podcast is for the creatives, spiritual entrepreneurs, and light workers in the world. The shining ones who have been told to dim their light and stop believing in magic. I say screw that. The time to rise is now to bring your gifts out into the world in a big way, creating a business that feeds your soul and your bank account. You are a magical being with the potential to change the world, one human at a time. The time for you to own your intuitive is now. Hey, everybody. You guys are in for the biggest treat today because I have legitimately one of my favorite humans in the entire world on the podcast today. Like, truly, I feel, I feel blessed that Pam Pryor is in my life. Every single time I get to spend time with you, Pam, I leave a better person. So thank you, thank you for coming on the show today. Wow. Well, that's entirely mutual. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this ever since we scheduled it. I love listening to your podcast and I can't wait for our conversation too. I know. It's like, what to expect? I never know what's coming. (laughs) Pam, before we got on live, she's like, I wonder when you're going to say, let's dive a little deeper into that. (laughs) Into some throwaway comment. (laughs) (laughs) So, Pam, why don't you give a little overview to everybody listening as to why I love you so much? What do you do? So, so I do finances. I do finances fun. Uh, accounting and bookkeeping and finances for entrepreneurs is my sweet spot right now. Uh, making it easier, accessible, and useful to them. Um, it comes from a long background of having worked in industry for more years than I care to admit, but a lot of them. And But in industry, I started in the mailroom and kind of grew up through all the jobs to accountant and then to controller and then to CFO in huge companies. And then as my career moved on, I went from larger to smaller companies and eventually ended up working with entrepreneurs. And my passion for what I did just kept growing and growing and growing as I moved from larger to smaller. And so here I have been doing exclusively entrepreneurs, working exclusively with them for, geez, a little over three years now and just love it. So what do you think it is about the entrepreneur that you absolutely are passionate about? I think that's a great question. Two things. One is I think the, the um, agility with which they move, the fact that most of them are flipping insane and I never know what's coming next um, and that I can take that and, and ground it without grounding them um, and make sure that their businesses support their vision. And it's so fun to see that connection made with people who are completely different than I am. So I get to work with like just totally different people than I am by nature. So that's, I think, number one. And the second is it struck me really early how underserved entrepreneurs are by finance and accounting. And so many of them basically follow their bookkeeper's orders or their accountant's orders and think that's how it has to be. And it's just not. This is your business and they're a support function for your business. And there are a few things I can teach you that as a CEO or an owner of a business, you need to know. And all of a sudden you take command of your finances instead of the other way around. And when that light bulb goes off for a business owner, that's, that's it. That's the thing that keeps me ticking. That's the spark that that flames your fire. Yeah, and in a big business, I mean, yes, it's fun. I mean, I got to lead people and help help people with their careers and their development and all of that. And it was beautiful for me and the little section of the organization that I affected. Um, But I got tired of doing the work to get dinosaurs to convert into what we all know as the way business should be run. In fact, if I said that, in some of the companies I work in, they'd cock their head and say, well, what do you mean? We're profitable. Mean? Yeah. Um, and, you know, what I get to work with now is so different than that. So random question, Pam. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say <laughs> that the majority of the entrepreneurs that you work with are risk takers and have a high risk tolerance level? Yes, the majority. I would say that is true. Um, But a lot of times they don't, part of the beauty of it, but also the the downside of it is that they don't really know what risk they're taking. They're so focused on their vision Mm. that they're going to do it no matter what, which is great. I mean, that really is great. But back in their head, there's this thing telling them the sky's going to fall. 
this isn't going to work. But they, and they fight that energetically. But what I do is give them the tools to fight that with facts so that we can say, yeah, here's your brilliant vision. And I can see something that is profitable, or if you're a not-for-profit, that makes your not-for-profit self-funding. And I can kind of validate for them. I'll give you an example of that. One of the entrepreneurs I worked with said, I, have, I don't know anything about finances. You know, it's crazy. The sky could fall tomorrow. Nothing, you know, nothing's going right. Here's what I know about my business. And they went on and told me for an hour what they know about their business. And I went off and looked at the numbers and did some stuff and came back and said, you know everything you need to know about your business. You just use a different language than an accountant and a bookkeeper uses. But you know it and you're right and you're right on track. So the entrepreneur's intuition is often spot on, but they need somebody to validate that. And something you said the last time that we were together in Toronto for the Archangel event really, really stuck with me because it was, you said this and legitimately Uh-oh. it's, I know you're like, whoa, did I say something that powerful? Uh-oh, I hope I meant it. No. <laughs> Right. It's like I had said, you know, my I have these things that I'm doing. You, you made me laugh when you were like the entrepreneur is going to do it no matter what. Right. And my belief is that, you know, the accountant and the bookkeeper oftentimes say this was a bad decision because, uh. you know, it just doesn't make sense on paper. And you looked at me and you said, no, you're going to do it. And then we're going to figure out the how. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's it's a very. um it's funny, before I knew a lot about the things that you work with and know so well in the, in the spirit and energy world, um, I always n- knew to lead with yes. And I always knew there was a reason for that. Now I understand all the why behind it. Um, so that's what I do. I lead with yes. And sure, maybe we adjust something about it or tweak something about it if it's truly not profitable. But it's not just, you know, no, that's not going to work. You, you can't do that to a vision. Well, you can, but golly, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have this little gadget here that used to take up, you know, the size of the Pentagon to give and us enough energy. I'm holding a cell phone right now for those listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good point. I'm holding up a cell phone. I mean, the, the power of this used to fit in a building the size of the Pentagon. And now it's in my hand. If somebody hadn't had the vision... If some accountant had said, oh, God, that's not going to be profitable. That won't make money for 20 years. Where would we be? True story. Yeah. So I love how this is starting. It's my (laughs) favorite. All of this like magic and like what makes you so incredible. Let's go back to Pam's origin story. Ah, okay. So... I think no, I actually life- know Pam's origin story, so I get to pull up whatever I want today. I know, <laughs> I know. So this, I'll do it in segments because it's a little bit of a weird origin story. So the short version is I was born in and graduated from high school in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, but in between birth and getting back to Wilmington, Delaware to graduate from high school, we traveled as a family because my dad was with DuPont, um, which is just a major chemical corporation. Um, to Argentina, to Germany, and to Garden City, Long Island. Um, We were in Germany probably for the longest of the time in there, for six years. So that's really what I think of as um, sort of the formative years, the six to 12, I was a six to 12 there. And then to Garden City, where I made some really, really, really close friends. And then soon after we got there, my dad got sick. Uh, He was, by the way, for DuPont, a controller, a finance and accounting guy. Um, I actually had in his desk, I had set up a little, in his office, a little desk of my own. It was one of those little kid desks, like, you know, that I could pull my little kid chair up to and had a stapler and some tape and paper on it. And he would pass me things to do, you know, back in the seventies, like staple papers together or file things or whatever. So, you know, that was part of my bonding with him. And he passed away when I was 13, 14. And we had moved back to Wilmington, but I had the accounting bug and it just so happened. There are no coincidences. The next year in school, they offered accounting for the first time and I took it. And back then it was all in paper and you got this kit for your business. That was all of the things that your business did. And then you got to capture it on paper. And I really liked the way then, even in high school, I recognized that that 
paper was capturing the story of the business. It was like a ghostwriter for the business. Mm. And um, I remember thinking, well, this is kind of cool. So I kept taking it. I entered the Delaware accounting competition, if you can believe it. And I came in second. What? (laughs) Yeah, I know. And then, um, you know, in high school did really, really well. Um, Actually, no pun intended. I know you're going to pick up on this theme. I ended up second, graduating second in my class in high school. Carolyn Reed, bless her heart, was first. I think it had something to do with calculus, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, But then I went to college. I was 17 years old because we had moved around so much. I was almost a year and a half younger than most people. Went to college, totally bombed out my first semester. Two C's, two D's, and an F. Went home. Actually, that's not true. Two B's, two C's, and a D. I just looked at my report card the other day or my transcript the other day. And I went home for Christmas and my mom said, that's it. I'm done paying for your school. We're not doing that. It's like, crap. And I had to go get a job. So I got a job in the mailroom at the pond. And then worked myself up from mailroom to accountant over the next 22 years at DuPont, up through to controller, left and went to be controller somewhere else. Um, You know, that's kind of long story short. So the segments are, you know, born in Wilmington, Argentina, Germany, Garden City, back to Wilmington, finished college, love accounting, and then went to work for... um, after DuPont, a regional bakery here for four years and then a logistics company for six years. And in between those was working with entrepreneurs. Um, I met my now wife in 1991 at, uh, when we were both at DuPont Merck and we've been together since. So that's 18 years now. In fact, our anniversary is next Wednesday or 28 years rather anniversary is next Wednesday. And seven years into that, we had our beautiful daughter, uh, Lindsay, who's now in her senior year in college. So we've lived in the Pennsylvania area, Philadelphia area, kind of ever since. And now I'm doing the work I love, absolutely love. So what was it like to be a young kid, Pam? And Oh my God, I was a terror. Well, actually, my mother called me actively curious. But I just had no semblance for anything but the moment I was in. No recognition for anything but the moment. So I was a tomboy. Um, I had my little go-kart and the whole neighborhood knew I was the kid out there riding around in my little go-kart all day, every day. I remember in Germany, they had something called Ruhezeit from one to three every day. And you had to, no kids were allowed outside during that time. It was like nap time for the adults. So we had to like go inside. I hated that two hour period because I had to be still hated it. And they even did it on the weekends. So that's when it really affected me during school. It didn't matter, but I played soccer, you know, was the best soccer kid in school at the time. I mean, I just, I loved being out in the world, physically playing in it with other people. And I was a little bit of a bully, um, but not really. When I was a bully, it was because somebody had done an injustice. And then I picked on the kid who was doing the injustice. So I was a self-righteous bully. Um, And bully's probably not the right word. Enforcer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the other thing which I told you as a kid, and was part of this whole mystique, is I stole money as a kid. If money was out on the counter, I took it. If I needed something, I would open my mom's wallet, take the money out, go buy it. And if somebody asked me if I stole the money, I'd say no. Um, And that went on for about a year and a half. And probably, I don't know, all told, I figured it out once because I'm such a geek. But all told, I figured out how much money I had stolen in that year and a half period. And let's just make this up, but say it added up to, you know, $100 or whatever. And then I did the, if I invested it in an aggressive, um, if I had invested that money in an aggressive uh, investment that had succeeded for that whole 40 years since that time or 35 years, what would it be worth? And I realized that the amount that that calculated out to was my limiting belief on my income level. What? You know, we didn't get that far. I'm such a geek. I am such a geek. So I I actually put a note out about it. And and, uh, my sister says, when are you paying me back? I said, well, I think we'll focus on giving it back to charity. But um, I do think that that for a long time had a, a, cap on my concept of what I had a right to earn. 
So then what was the limiting belief on the amount that you were? What was the amount? Well, you said, yeah. You, you oh, yeah, it was $200,000 a year. 200000 a year? That's it. I could not make more than that. It wasn't fair. Right. And I, and, I, and I find that fascinating because somebody could be listening to this and going like 200000 a year, it seems like a lot. If you're in the 30000 35000 yeah, yeah. a year bracket, right? Like that feels... But uh, the point isn't the number. Right. The point is the story. That could just as easily have been 30000 or a million. Mm-hmm. So have you been working on busting through that block? Well, yeah, I worked with you on busting through that block. Um, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty clear that I did bust through it because I just changed the concept. I'd never told anybody that I'd stolen ever. I was like mortified about this. Here I am an accounting CFO. And from the ages of, I think it was eight and nine, I stole money. And I'm like, that's just terrible. I can never let that secret get out. And once I just, you in fact worked with me on it and I finally sent a post out and said, here's my story. Well, it was hysterical because within 30 seconds, the responses were, uh, duh, most every kid did, or yeah, I did that too, or um, you know, any number of things, like my sister saying, well, cool, pay me back. <laughs> you know, it, was, it, it was like a, a non, you know, you know, you were a kid. All kids did. Adults do stupid things. Kids do stupid things. And, and uh, it was never malintended. I remember it just being, I need this. That's there, so Makes I sense. should take it and go do the thing. Yeah. Um, usually it was to buy candy if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah. And just, I think that particular process that you and I went through together, just, you know, that let that go. Yeah. Well, like to hear you say that story, just so nonchalantly and confidently, I'm sitting over here going like, wow, that is so amazing. I was sweating bullets when we first talked about, I'm like, no, Tamara, I cannot go back. I can't. And you're like, write the, write the note, write the note, just write it. Don't send it anywhere. Write the note. And I wrote the note and felt a little bit better. And I'm like, I'm doing a Facebook post and pushed the button and buried my head and then started hearing the dings. And I was like, Oh, nobody hates me. (laughs) The most magical feeling in the land. When we hold on to something that we think is like going, the earth is open up and and then only good things come from it. Yeah, I, I truly did think it was, and it's amazing how awful I made that in my, you know, in my head. So moving around a lot as a kid though, was that hard like to emotionally, energetically? No, um, not for most of it. So moving from, I don't remember Wilmington to Argentina and Argentina to Germany. I remember leaving Germany Uh, And coming back to the States and feeling like a stranger in a strange land. But for a couple of reasons. One is in Germany, we were in a a private school that was white Anglo-Saxon Americans were the minority. So, um, you know, with every color of the rainbow and, you know, this handful of white Americans um, out of, you know, 300 kids, probably we were maybe 20, 25% of the school population. So, that was just what the world was like to me. And we moved back to Garden City, Long Island, which I believe had one black family living in it and no skin tones in between white and black of any magnitude. So that I remember kind of going, well, this is like, I didn't really recognize it because I was still kind of self-obsessed and it was all about volleyball and softball and school and friends. And But I do remember like that feeling just like, something was off. Like I couldn't quite figure out what it was. So that was an interesting insight as an adult to look back on that. But I also made some of my very best friends there in Garden City in the very short time we were there. And it was um, also colored with the emotion of my dad being sick. And we moved, we made an emergency move in the middle of my ninth grade year back to Wilmington so that my family could be around their friends from, you know, the old days and dad died the month after that. So that period of, it was 1976, was you know clearly highly traumatic. Um, however, my approach to it was very much like the rest of my family, which was, okay, now we deal with this and we go back to school and back to sports and on we go. Um, and when, when in truth, I had had an incredibly tight relationship with my dad. I was his little tomboy. So I never really grieved that, his death. Um, not a year later, my uncle, who was also a lot like 
my dad to me passed away. So that whole period, it, it doesn't feel dark to me. You know, like when I think back on it, because I just kept doing what I'd always been doing, but I know that's influenced. You know, I know I've been chasing his ghost in my career, certainly. Um, when I hit the level that he was as a controller, it was strange to me to surpass it. Um, when I hit his age, I got cancer. I got a, uh, and he died of cancer. I got a, it turns out that it was a, what's called a gist, which was removed. And there's literally, although they never say this about any other cancer, because it was removed and the margins were clean, there's a 0% chance of recurrence, like truly zero, not just, you know, marginal. Um, but that happened when I was 48. He was 48 when he died. So, you know, I know it's in there and, and I grieve him through a lot of things. And I think one of the main things, I think the biggest thing I grieved him through oddly was our dog Patches, uh, who we had to put down when he was young because we had rescued him and he had some significant issues that just, we tried everything, psychology, psychiatry, medication, all the things. And after six months, he had already bitten three people. So the state made us put him down, which we wildly fought, but lost the battle for. And I had to put him down. Well, I think I mourned that dog for a year, at least. How old were um, you when you had Patches? What's that? How old were you when you had Patches? 55. This was last year and a half ago. Two oh. years ago. Two years ago, oh. actually, on Halloween. Um, and the... It, it and not and that night when he bit the last person, I broke my not broke. I hurt something in my foot. I can't even remember what it was now, but I ended up being in a boot. What should have been three weeks was seven months. So I think that was my period of finally letting go of all that. Um, yeah. So that's the that. Yeah, I love the moving. I, you know, the thing I think that that serves now, there's actually a book called um, uh, Third Something Kid. Third Something Kid. I'll remember it before we're done. Yeah. But it's about kids who live in countries that aren't their parents' home country. And the advantage, it talks about both the disadvantages and the advantages. I don't really look at the disadvantages. I think the advantages are, I know that no matter how foreign a situation seems to me, how new it is to me, I can, I know for a fact it will become as real and part of my life as it needs to be without any question. You know, sure, you don't know who your friends are going to be. You don't know who you're going to bond with, but there's going to be somebody and there's a reason you're there. Um, and it happened over and over and over again when literally, and, and in those days, there's no Facebook, there's no yeah, phones yeah. even that you, like when these friends were gone, they were gone. Letters was about all we could do. Although, interestingly enough, from 40 years ago, that group's now getting back together on Facebook for the school in Germany, which is kind of fun. But, um, yeah, so I knew that you can love something intensely, always love it for the rest of your life, but all that's going to happen the next time is expansion. It's not going to be, you know, either or, and it's not going to be nothing. And that is just an amazing gift, I think. That is an amazing gift. Yeah. And I, I mean, I see you do it. When, when we're out in, at when I'm in strange day. places, yeah, right? Like you're exceptional at creating relationships and, and really going there with people like in that in-depth world. Like if you're talking to somebody, no, everybody knows not to go over there in a sense, because mm. we feel like it's beautiful. It's beautiful. The level of presence you give a conversation. Um, so I want to know something just <laughs> because I want you're to Tamara. know. <laughs> Tamara wants to know. That should be the name of the podcast. Tamara wants to know. I do want to know. My curiosity <laughs> always gets the best of me in terms of when did you know you liked women in this whole story mm. and kind of. Wow, that's a great question. The coming out story. Yeah. So if I look back now, it's clear to me that this was something since I was probably six, but I didn't recognize it until I was 22. So, and then I didn't come out till I was 31. So if I look back, there is a string of women from the time I was six that I had 
you know, maybe everybody has this too. I don't know. This might not be a gay thing. This just might be a thing um, that I had, you know, massive love for. Um, I, and they became friends or whatever. And I never, it was never anything sexual, certainly at six, but it was like, I just wanted to be around that person. Um, and that lasted right through till I was 22. And the one that that happened to be happening with when I was 22 kissed me and I'm like, whoa, oh, duh, kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when, that's literally when I woke up in a green Honda outside the front of my house in Arden, Delaware. And I was like, oh, and she's like, duh. (laughs) So that was a a very short, you know, short-lived relationship. But then soon after that, I was in a a six-year relationship with a woman. And during that, I came out. um, Actually, that's not true. Didn't come out during that. Thought my family just thought we were good friends. Um, When I met Deb, I came out forgive my lawnmower guy out there and I never forget it because my mom was raised a Southern Baptist and she wasn't by any means uh, a teetotaling not drinking my parents were partying parents but you know her basic religious beliefs were very fundamental and she when I told her that I came out and said you know this is Deb I'm in love with her we're going to be a couple she just went well, if you're sleeping with her, I hope it's serious. <laughs> like, that is my practical mother. That kind of sums my mom up in a nutshell. I'm like, well, it is. And sure enough, 29 years later, it's still serious. Um, so, yeah, that, summed, that was my big coming out. The rest of my family, except for my mother, went, yeah, duh, of course you're gay. Um, all my friends went, yeah, duh, of course you're gay. Um, I was out to a lot of my friends at that point. So, um, but you know, but I had dated a guy in college for actually in high school in college for probably three or four years until uh, he went to college. Turns out he was gay when he got out to college. So it's like, he went first and I'm like, well, okay. And then it was after that, that the 22 year old thing happened. Like, so what do you think? Was it fear that kept you from coming out? Because I know it wasn't really con- considered common, you know, however, yeah. you know, 30 years ago. I wanna, there are two answers to that question. So I think when I was in my 20s and before I met Deb, it wasn't so much fear as it was just a continuation of that childhood thing of mine, which is it just doesn't matter. Nobody needs to know. It, it, there's nothing to know. It's just, this is what I'm doing. So I'm doing it. Um, but when I met Deb, it was just obvious that this was going to be my life. So people had to understand it. And if they understood it, they were welcome. If they didn't, they didn't. Well, nobody didn't understand it. Now, we didn't go around and carry a flag and uh, you know push things on people. We just were who we were living together. And then seven years later, having a baby and people went, oh, oh. Um, And that's how we kind of carry, like we didn't make any big announcements or anything, but people started treating less like a couple at work. And then people started treating like like a couple in uh, church. And it just just kind of evolved. Um, So so when you had Lindsay. Yeah. So when we had Lindsay, Deb had her by artificial insemination and it was an anonymous donor. Um, They remember the number. I think it was 134 was the number of the vial of the, the paternal thing. Um, And she, we didn't get, she didn't get pregnant on the first try, but she got pregnant on the second try. Um, And the minute I saw Lindsay, I knew this was my child since forever. Um, and it's been that way in this family. Like it doesn't occur to me that people might look at it and go, oh, she's adopted until they say that. You know, do you have any real kids, kids of your own? You're like, what? <laughs> so like, that's just weird. Um, and I don't even answer the question. I just kind of like... Who Shake decided my head. to have the baby? We, <laughs> great question. So we were planning. Well, my da- first of all, you got to go back to my dad. My dad planned his three daughters five and a half years apart because he never wanted two in college at the same time. 
So I was, we were planning, we want to be here financially before we have a kid. We want to be here financially before we have a kid and things happen and we weren't getting to that place. And one night we went to dinner and we both sat down and looked at each other. And at the same time, almost Deb said, I don't care. I want to have a baby. And I said, I don't care. I want to have a baby. Let's just do this. And then we had to figure out who was going to carry the baby. And Deb's uh, cycle was very regular and mine was not. So we said, you ought to do it. And sure enough, she did. And a lot of people have a lot of trouble with this. It takes five, six, seven, eight times. They have to go into in vitro and we were blessed. Um, And, and not just blessed because she got pregnant. It was a healthy pregnancy, but out came this miracle child um, who's now out in the world spreading just somehow she managed to pull out the best of both of us without the crap. Um, and is, is just really, it's just amazing her story. This is the strangest question you'll probably ever get. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. I think. Because for me, right? Like I didn't grow up around anyone that I knew that that was gay. Like I just didn't right uh-huh. now. You, I don't, there are things happening in my immediate family like my children that yep. I'm slowly talking about, but it's not mine to talk about yet, but I really want to talk about, but I can't talk about <laughs> it. And so the curiosity for me here is like, I understand that two women go into the relationship. Is it complete partnership? Do, does one take over like more of the dominant masculine, one the dominant feminine? Like how does that work dynamically? Not in our relationship. I think people looking at it from the outside, just from our appearances and our approaches like I'm very present big and loud and Deb is very gentle understanding and um, quieter so I think people might just go to that automatic oh Pam's the masculine Deb's the feminine Um, Deb likes doing the loves to clean I hate to clean (laughs) Um, I love doing the numbers stuff and the paperwork so there's a division of labor I think like in any relationship I don't think it falls along testosterone estrogen lines it just kind of falls so like when all of our stuff is blended it has been forever like our joint checking account started the first year we were together i mean there's no taking apart the finances and it's just like any marriage and it has been for 28 years although we didn't actually get married till five years ago because it wasn't legal in the state and um the church wouldn't recognize it yet. We're uh, Episcopalian. But once it became legal in the state and the church had a, a right for it, we we did. We had a fantastic wedding. That's a whole other story. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. That, I think if people looked at us, they'd make the assumption that it, that it is kind of a masculine-feminine thing, but it's really – no, because I know you, you just right? each have our space. You, to me, you're nurturing and you're beautiful and you're like all of these things, right? So I wouldn't associate it at all. But I yeah. think it's like a, a conception or a misconception that goes around in that. That's a great point. And it, and, and it is because I think even in um, male-female relationships, um, there's, a, there's not really a masculine and a feminine. feminine. There's some mix of all the people, I think. Yeah, well, and and it's fascinating. Yeah, your microphone just switched off into another. I know. Is it back? Yeah, it's back. Okay, that is bizarre. Whoa! (laughs) But it's true, right? Because like even in the relationship between Jeff and I, I'm the the main financial breadwinner and the one who spends the most time in the work hours. Jeff takes the kids to school and yeah, is more of the nurturer. But that was that was actually a very uncomfortable shift for us as as a couple. I believe it. I think in our generation, I can see why that is true. The thing that I can tell you, at least in what I see through Lindsay's and her friend's eyes now, all of this is a non-event. I remember when I was at DuPont (laughs) and Deb and I had met and we were like probably 35 and DuPont had a gay and lesbian group and they were talking about, um, you know, uh, medical health benefits for partners and all this And I remember saying to somebody, you know, somebody said, oh, my God, we're making so much progress. And I said, you know, we are. I said, but I I think the real progress is going to be when there's just no need for any discussion about it. And that's where I think this generation is. It's just like they have, and I don't even know all the terms. I have to learn them. But they have 
um, gender neutral friends and binary friends and gay friends and bi friends and straight friends. And, and it's just no friends. And, and it's just not an issue. Like a pack of eight kids will come in the house. I have no idea who's doing what in the bedroom yeah. and it's yeah. totally irrelevant. And it goes even further where they like, my kids just started high school and they actually ask what, what is your preferred name? This is yeah. Your this. preferred pronoun your, and your preferred pro pronoun. There's no assumptions made anymore right. on what somebody's gender is or what their preference is. At right. all. And you're just like, that is so to, again, growing up the way that we, we did. But I'm it's so grateful that yeah. it is just so accepted. It's normal now. Yeah. And it's a celebration. Um, so let's go, Pam. <laughs> Uh-oh, here we go. <laughs> Was it uncomfortable <laughs> to go from always working behind the seat oh, great to the stepping forward two as question. The number two question. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think I made it uncomfortable. Um, so I've always been... Uh, yeah, like number two in in high school, we talked about that. You know, it kind of started there. I've always been sort of the second best, like at anything I've attempted. Whether it was the bowling league top score, it was number two. Whether it was softball's best, you know, uh, rating, number two. Um, made all state volleyball, but we we never won the championship. We were number two. I mean, it's just like. This this pattern of number two in my life, which I didn't realize till, you know, literally probably four or five years ago. But anytime in work, I was always working and became the right hand or the sort of best thing for whoever it was that was directly above me in the company. Um, and then when I became a controller and a CFO, as a CFO, I'm sort of the number two right hand to CEOs. And I love, 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 love it. And I think I decided that at some point I had to become an entrepreneur and run my own company because I had to be number one. I had to break this number two barrier. What I've done now is realize that I love that number two spot and there's nothing shameful about it. So let's create a business where I get to do that for a lot of people. So I get to run my business which I'm in charge of and need to find another me to be a, you know, my number two, but I get to play that role that I love with so many different people. And, you know, in industry, it was always one person, you know, and, and that's fine. And that's great. You really get to know them. You really bond your friends in the foxhole and there's, even PTSD when it's all over kind of thing with some of the battles that happen in industry. Um, but I bring that ability to connect with somebody, a CEO, to the table. And people know it immediately when they're talking to me. They've got somebody who's going to dive into it with them, um, protect them if they need protecting, kick them out of the foxhole when they need to be kicked out of the foxhole. Um, it's, it's a chief of staff kind of role when it comes to finance. And I love it. My, my, you know, I don't know if you watched West Wing. No way. It was a great show in the States in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, it was Martin Sheen. And I forget the guy who played the chief of staff, but his name was Leo. And he basically ran everything so that the president or the visionary could do what they needed to do. And I love doing it. So as soon as I got over um, number two being an issue, I realized I could... It's what it's it's my sweet spot. It's what I love. It's my superpower, and embraced it. And it got a little less, um, I don't know, of a challenge. It stopped being a challenge and started being an opportunity. So there's two things that I I want to note here. One is again when I was talking about how we know when you're talking to somebody the depth that you you go with people, mm -hmm. and you just kind of confirmed that there with that whole like. Huh. Level. There's the huh. I love you. Got the huh. huh Pam. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Hadn't made that connection. <laughs> and so, you know what I mean? Like that is your superpower as that that communicator and that caregiver and that holding the space for your client and even a conversation. You you do that same level. Huh. Of of space holding. So it's really powerful. 
And then I forgot what the second thing that I was going to say, but it was also really awesome. I'm absolutely sure. It was the number two thing. Well, and I think that there is a level in which you, you are number one. And this is where, cause you are a stage presence. Oh yeah. I love speaking. <laughs> I love, 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 love speaking. Absolutely love it. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I get my juice from that the same way I get, I get it from watching an entrepreneur go, wow, I didn't know I was this good at what I do. Meaning them was that good at what they do. So what is it about getting up on stage that fires, that was so fun, <laughs> fires you up so much? So, yeah, the two things that get me this excited are when a light bulb goes off for an entrepreneur or they say, hey, I feel so safe, protected, and, and confident. That's just mind-boggling. And I think on the stage is because I get to see little versions of that light bulb popping in a bunch of people's heads. Like, I know very clearly that when people are in the room, their list, they're there for a reason because finance is not the talk that's going to attract all the people ever. But so I work really hard on making it fun and interesting. And the people that are in the room when that's happening, I know are going to get something out of whatever I'm saying. And I watch the little light bulbs go off. I can make eye contact with people. And it's so it's like, it's like uh, number two on steroids, but you're actually on the stage playing that that support role. You also talked a lot over the course of this where you have seen or been able to witness that you had a limiting belief, like, or that yeah. something was holding. Or you somebody back. pointed it out to me as in you. <laughs> <laughs> you love finding those limiting beliefs. It's kind of like my, my favorite thing to do. That's what lights me up. Right. Mm-hmm. And being able to bust through those. Yes. And so like, in the process of self-development, right? Because when you decided to to become the entrepreneur and step forward in that role, Mm -hmm. what like level of self-development took over there? Like how much? God, the amount that I've developed personally since June of 2016 is stunning. And I would call it self-awareness. So for years, people have told me to meditate. Deb, my wife, has told me to meditate for years. Um, I've known that my while I'm very um, attracted to and love my religious uh, belief and, and the church and the music and the liturgy and all of that, I've known that my spirituality was inclusive of that, but more, that that was just a, a religion and a, a path in for me. Um, but I never explored it. Um, and since I've become an entrepreneur in meeting, you know, really, I, I attribute this a lot to Angela Loria because she introduced me into this world of you crazy people and it's the woo woo and the spiritual and all of the things I found myself fascinated by it intellectually initially. And then it started becoming very real to me that there was energy. And once that, um, clicked, everything changed. And I started hearing and seeing and learning from more things that I had previously thought were kind of out there on the fringe, all of a sudden made sense in a whole new way. Um, And I started meditating and it was a completely different experience. And I started um, working on my energy and with you, for example, and a whole bunch of things changed. And I just, you know, I aligned with the fact that there was a ton to learn here. I got a little peek in and then I, I couldn't get it satiated. It's just, I want to learn, 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 learn. Um, and so now, you know, Deb just laughs at me. She's like, I've been talking this stuff for 20 years and you always look at me and cock your head. And now all of a sudden you're bringing me books, you know, what's this about? So it's fun because now she and I now are aligned in a way that we weren't before because she was always kind of out ahead of me uh, in that, in that regard. So once you started to clear your inner self and you started to meditate and you started to hear and listen and things like that, would you say Mm -hmm. that the intuition that you have garnished through that experience has actually enhanced what you do and how you show up in your business and where you actually place your buckets and things or? Yes. I think what it's done 
if I were to summarize it, I'd say it's allowed me to appreciate the value I bring to a conversation, to my work, to my family, um, which I didn't before. I would play it down. Like I was the, the queen of self-deprecation. Um, and I learned that, that there's humility, which is admirable and wonderful, but that's not the same as self-deprecation. And I needed to open up and be aware of and celebrate my gifts as gifts and that that's okay because that's what I'm here for. And there are people out there waiting for this thing. And if I just pretend it's not anything of value, nobody's going to find it. But if I take the lid off and just be who I am, the way I am and appreciate it and know that there's value, exactly the right people are going to find find it. The people who need it are going to find it. And the people who don't, you know, they'll just keep going. Um, and that I think is probably the biggest thing that's come from it in my business. I've, I can relax a little bit when things aren't, I remember to relax and meditate when I'm like, why isn't this working? Then it's like, oh, breathe, meditate and let it happen. Stop trying to force the how. You Stop weren't one of the biggest resistors to meditation I've ever worked with. I want Oh you. my God, I was a pain in the ass. <laughs> I would never want to be my own client, ever. I can look back at my entire life and say I never would have wanted to be the mother, the teacher, the boss, or the spiritual advisor to this person. <laughs> but you are such a joy at the same time. I absolutely <laughs> loved every. Nobody Every was as nobody was as right as I was ever, <laughs> and that's probably one thing. Do I a little coffee a little shop, bit. and we were playing a who's most likely to game. Like it's just a box, and you just open it up, and it's like who's most likely to be arrested, who's most likely <laughs> to love Christmas, who's most and like the question was who's most likely to be right all the time, and everybody was like clearly Tamara. Tamara. <laughs> Like, no, really? I know, right? <laughs> That's so funny. But uh, let's go back to the passion that you have for working with entrepreneurs because I've seen it in action and I have been present to, to kind of watch what happens from when you're on stage because mm -hmm. there is something, and I've told you this after one of your talks, you if have. you remember, that one of my favorite things was to watch you do the Q&A. Yeah, you mentioned that this just about six months ago, I think. I think so. Yeah, was, I think it was in February. And, yeah. and like the, the spark that just like goes off, like in fielding finance questions for entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. So if, if an entrepreneur, because like I'm an entrepreneur and I don't know a lot of things and mm -hmm. we truly believe we don't know a lot of things, what would be the first step for an entrepreneur to kind of start to understand their finances a little bit better? Well, the what I all I can do is tell you what I do with people and what tends to lead to success with them with them kind of getting it on their terms is I start with you tell me about your business the way you think about it and just let them brain dump that and that I usually take and make a picture of and I show them the picture and say is this what you've said where do I have it right where do I have it wrong that's why I have this one whiteboard here. While I'm talking with anybody, be it client, prospect, giving a webinar, whatever, I'm drawing on the board while you're talking. And, you know, usually I get it pretty right. Um, I've had the benefit of working in a ton of industries. So I kind of know everything from manufacturing to pharmaceuticals, to publishing, to service businesses. And intuitively, I get a picture of what you're talking about in my head. So when they see that and they agree that that's what it is, then I can start to introduce the fact that, okay, that's all happening in your world. Do you understand and recognize that absolutely everything you're doing in your business comes from two things, your bank account and your time? That, yep, I get that. Okay. You're keeping track of your time. You got that figured out. Or there are people who can help you and coach you on figuring it that out. I have a ton of ideas on it, which I usually pipe in on because I can't keep my mouth shut about anything. But let's talk about that cash piece because cash is the other thing. And what I show them is how their bank account is the foundation for everything and how they can know and understand what's going to happen to that bank account in a way that explains or tells or writes the ghost story 
of what's happening in their business so that they can always look at the numbers. Anytime they doubt something in their business or worry about something in their business, when they look at the numbers we build for them, they make sense because they're aligned with that initial picture that we drew. And then I start to teach them a little bit about the things to pay attention for, but I do it in their language. So, um, you know, if you use the word, uh, if you don't like the word revenue, in fact, I'll, t- I'll give you a great example. Um, oh, what was it called? It was working with one of my, it was working with Angela and there, you know, everybody has a line on the profit and loss statement called miscellaneous. And she didn't like it. She said, I really want to just, I forget what the exact term was. It was like, you know, fun shit or something. So we literally put that in the books. There's a fun shit line. And she said, give me the budget for my fun shit every month. And so we budgeted a fun shit line. So sure, when we went to the banks, did I have to change that? And, and sure, but she didn't need to know that. When she saw a report, it said, there's your fun shit budget. So we translated into, uh, that's not the right word for it. If she listens to this, she'll correct it. There was another term for it, but it adds shit in it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what we do. That's a, a weird little example. But if some people think in terms of, I want to have a budget for how much I can spend on stuff. Right. And I do all the crap behind the scenes that lets them know that. If someone has a question about, I need to know when I can hire people. We structure it so they get that answer. So it depends on where they are in their business. We just show them that there's something behind it that that can make them comfortable with the decision they're making or make them do things to make themselves comfortable with it. So would that be, because I know that you work with people um, as a, a CFO for the entrepreneur, mm-hmm. right? Is that yep. that level of work or is there more le- levels of work that people can work with you in terms of to get that, that level of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a number of different ways people can work with me. So I have a couple of very large clients that to them, I am their CFO whenever they need a CFO. So no matter when they pick up the phone, I'm there. Um, I only keep two of those because, you know, they have to feel like I'm their CFO whenever they need a CFO. So for them, in essence, it's a full-time CFO because it's always there when they need it. Then I have a whole chunk of clients and I figured out where my limitation is. It's 15, where I am with them twice a month on a phone or via Zoom for the most part. And we're having these same conversations. They want to do something in their business. Something's happened in their business. I make sure that for them, all of the numbers are being kept in a way and are available and are aligned with what's actually happening in the business. Now, there's a bunch of accounting terms for that. It's this huge amount of stuff that goes on. But to them, they just need to know they can get the answers they need when they need them. And we meet a couple times a month and they update me on their business and we have strategic conversations. So there's that level of CFO work that often comes at the beginning with a cleanup. So a lot of entrepreneurs come and everybody's got a shame story around finances. I just wish people, you know, I tell people, let's put that on the shelf because you've seen me in, in my, one of my speeches that I do. So look to your left and look to your right. Every single person you're looking at has a, I'm so ashamed, but story about their finances. So mm-hmm. let's put that one on the shelf. And once we get past that, it's kind of like my stealing journey. <laughs> once we get past that, it like opens up the ability to say, okay, here's all the stuff I'm worried about. And it gives me the visibility to know, okay, here's what I have to construct to make you comfortable. Um, I forget where I was going with that. But so that we got through, you have the two like major yeah, 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 yeah. and we right. got the, the 15, um, like that higher touch level. Right. And then we have the, yeah, the higher touch level, the, the, the sort of 15 people that I manage on a, an ongoing basis level. And I, I do what's called a deep dive. Sometimes if somebody's coming to me and it's just like, I've got this mess, fix it. We'll do a concentrated eight week focus on them, get everything un you know, ripped open and put back together the best way possible, fix their processes, fix their data, and a whole bunch of stuff that happens happen underneath the what's ha- what's been built, um, and then oftentimes they'll want to stay on as one of those you know mid range clients. But the thing I'm most excited about is the program I'm putting together for smaller entrepreneurs. Well, I'm not putting it together. I've run it twice already. I'm going to be running it again starting in November, um, which is a six week program for smaller entrepreneurs. It gets 
everything done for you. So if they don't like the way their books are set up or they don't have their books set up, they're still with receipts under the desk in a box, which a few of us have. Um, we'll get them all set up, all of their history loaded. We'll get the books set up to talk to them the way they deal with their business. Six weeks of education for them um, from me in um, Zoom online type training. Six weeks of office hours where you can ask anything they want. The end of all that, we hand them their QuickBooks with a video set of instructions for their bookkeeper, customized to them. Help them find a bookkeeper if they need that help. And we develop a forecast for them so they can start to actually look at the what's the, what they want to do in the next 12 months and see how it affects their bank balance. So all of that happens in six weeks. And then there's an optional live capstone program where we just blow them away with amazing things. Wow. How many people are already like, I need all the Pam? <laughs> I got a little bit of a lineup. I did just announce the new um, program, the, the November one start date. I just announced that yesterday. So the line is forming now. So yeah, and, and it's a very small group. So this will actually yeah. go. Oh yeah, in, good point. And so it's going live in two weeks. Yes. This, this uh, podcast. So oh, gotcha. You, it will be, and even if we have a way that people can reach you, if you haven't put it in the show notes, Pam, if, if there's a link to the, the like. Sure, I'll, sh I'll make sure I get that, that to you. Because I think that that is the first phase of uh, chain, right? That, that the entrepreneur yeah, it really goes is. through is, is a hiding, <laughs> hiding all of it. I don't want to tell yeah. anyone about my finances because I am a, the worst entrepreneur in all the land. <laughs> right, because clearly you have to be. The worst one. Right. It's oh, and the other thing I should say is even though that's a group program, it's there's a, anything specifically about their numbers or their situation is very private. The group is the training stuff and the generic questions. We have private interaction around their individual situation. Thank you. That's a good note. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. But yeah, I'll give you the link to the application for that. It, it is going to run every couple months all throughout 2020. So if this one fills up, we'll, just let them know when the next one is. This one I'm really excited about because we wrap up the second week in December, which means they've got this thing set for 2020. You know, this is my favorite one of the year, I've got to admit, because you, you get into that clean slate mentality. Yeah. And people new really year, get, new start, new year, new start. Yeah, it's like I have a plan now. I can actually translate that into action. And I know as a CEO how to be comfortable that my number, my finances support it, my bank account supports it, and I know how to deal with things if they change. Amazing. I and mean, where would they find you, Pam Pryor, if they are just like, ooh, this oh, yeah. Well, there's, there's tons of stuff available on YouTube. Pam Pryor, just look up Pam Pryor. Um, my, I have a page in Facebook. It's Pam Pryor page. I have a group in Facebook that's free. That's called Profit Plan for Entrepreneurs. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I will, I speak for groups. So there's a page called, uh, W it's H, you know, website, pamprior.com mm -hmm. slash speaker. Um, and that's got a lot of information and I'll send you all that for the show notes or knock at my door, listen to my dogs bark and then say hi. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. I just love you. And so if somebody's listening and they're like, what is Pam Pryor's favorite book that she ever read that had the most impact in her life? What would you drop into the listeners mailboxes for them to read right now? This is going to sound weird, but I'm not, I w was never a huge reader and I don't even remember the full title of it, but my favorite book was about and this is not politically correct, Thomas Jefferson. Um, but what it was about was how he communicated in an age and got a following that led to the creation of this country uh, along with his fellow people. Um, and it talked very honestly about his struggles as a human. And you really got a sense of what it was like to live in that time period where there was no technology no platform, literally to influence people. You went and hung out in the town square and talked. Um, you remember the name or the author? Because I give. I, I give am looking it up people. right now. Well, we, you can just send it to me with the link to your amazing new program that you are offering. To Absolutely. New entrepreneurs, Pam Pryor. I love you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I love you right back. 
and I'm going to tell you what this is called. I can see Pam. If you're watching the video, you can see how like I'm gonna make, Pam is like, I'm going to get it. <laughs> it's called Thomas Jefferson, the art of power. The art of power. Yeah. Which is interesting because it really is the art of communication. Um, and it's by John Meacham, M-E-A-C-H-A-M. Perfect. Yeah. There we go. Whew. That's a tough <laughs> we question. We like tonight now. That was good. <laughs> Clearly, I was supposed to say that book. I don't know that it's actually my favorite book, but it's the one that came it's to the mind. the one that came so, through, yep. and that's what we trust. So. I have loved chatting with you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. That was, I always learn something new and exciting and magnificent about you, Pam, every single time. Me too. I love my Tamara time. Thank you. And everybody, I hope you enjoyed the show. Please let us know. Tag us on Instagram or any other place and reach out if you have any questions. We will be back next Friday with another amazing guest. If you've been listening to the Own Your Intuitive podcast and you know you are ready to step into your stardust and to shine your light out into this world, but you don't know what your stardust is and you don't know how to bust through your blocks, I would love to jump on a call to find out if the Chakra Business Academy is the perfect place for you to grow into your lightworker self, to step into this world as a spiritual entrepreneur, making a difference and making an impact. If you're interested, you can go to TamaraArnold.ca slash application and we'll be on a call in no time and you'll be taking steps into stepping into your stardust and making an impact in the world with the exact purpose that you were put on this earth to do.